Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. This week is the third week in our Advent season, and today uh, we've been focusing on Isaiah chapter 9. Um, and uh, last week I, I said that it was a very famous passage because Linus reads it in the Charlie Brown Christmas. But I watched the Charlie Brown Christmas, and I was wrong. So I, I deeply apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, he was reading a passage out of Luke. Um, but we've been studying Isaiah chapter 9, uh, and especially verse 6, where Isaiah gives these four attributes of the coming Messiah King. And so we're taking a week on each of those attributes. And so the title of the message today is, When the Son is a Father. And we're going to look at three things. It's a bit of a shorter message since we ran over with the play. The paradox of the eternal fatherhood, the revelation of eternal fatherhood, and the invitation of eternal fatherhood. So the paradox, the revelation, and the invitation. All right, let's read from our passage in Isaiah 9. Uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so let's look first at the paradox of eternal fatherhood. So we're looking today at that third title, which is, He shall be called Everlasting Father. You could also translate that, and some versions do, as eternal father. And so here we have a prophecy of a baby that has not yet been conceived who is already a father. A baby who is a father from eternity. So Isaiah is saying he's a father before his conception. So this is, this is the paradox of this prophecy. And I wonder, how did Isaiah's audience make sense of what he said? And how should we make sense of what he says here? So, scholars through the ages have agreed that this is a messianic prophecy. It's referring to the coming messianic king. Um, but if you try and read this verse and apply it merely to a human ruler, uh, as people would have naturally expected when they heard this prophecy, as uh, Judaism uh, does to this day, you run into serious issues. So when you read the, the, the commentaries on how do you make sense of this um, from a, uh, just a, a, a human perspective, well, some say that uh, just like the Egyptians gave their pharaohs these throne names, throne titles, uh, this is an example of the Hebrews doing the same thing, kind of copying that royal tradition. And so that fits quite well. Um, these are quite like some of the Egyptian titles. But the problem is, 
the Egyptians believed that their kings were divine. They believed that they were gods. So even if that does hold, it actually, it still creates a problem because the Hebrews did not do that. They did not give these kinds of names even when they did this kind of thing. So there's, there's something strange here. And I would argue the only way to hold this together is that Isaiah is prophesying a coming Messiah who eternally pre-exists his own birth. Excuse me? <laughs> right? He eternally pre-exists his own birth. Now, for us looking back at this, we interpret it through a Christian framework, and we say, well, of course, you know, this is talking about Jesus Christ, who Christians believe is fully human, fully divine. Thank you, St. Nicholas, for helping us sort that out. In the Nicene Creed, that's exactly what he was there, you know, uh, defending. Um, and so we can, we can synthesize these two parts uh, through the doctrine of the Incarnation. But that also runs into a little bit of an issue. I don't know if you thought this when you read this passage. Um, Trinitarian theology says the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, although they are of one divine essence. And so, in what sense is the Messiah, who is Jesus, eternal Father? Now, that's what I was thinking as I was studying this, you know. And um, what we have to bear in mind is actually that uh, we need to be careful about reading um, back into the texts our current understanding. And um, actually, the Trinitarian lens is not the right lens to be reading this through um, at that level, because Isaiah didn't have that in mind. He was not, uh, he was not expounding Trinitarian theology. Um, we're, we're seeing that as we read it from the new back into the old. Um, Isaiah is not talking about the, the, the persons of the Godhead. He's talking about, he's describing the, the character, the nature of this coming ruler. It's, it's his kingship, his rulership that's mainly in focus, which is why I read verse 7, because it gets into the governmental aspects, right, of the, of the Messiah. And so the point in view here is that the king is an eternal king. The ancients viewed their kings as fathers of the nation, and so um, Isaiah is saying that uh, the, the human birth of this baby does not signify the beginning of his headship over Israel, of his fatherhood over Israel. But if we believe that this predicts Jesus, which we do believe, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who is God, but not the Father, in what sense is it correct to apply this title to him? All right, and so here is the answer of the New Testament, and, and, and this is how I would sum it up. Jesus is not the Father, but he makes the Father visible. Jesus is not the Father, but he makes the Father visible. Now, of course, when you know the Gospels, Jesus tells us in the book of John that uh, he says, I and the Father are one. And in John 14, the disciples say, Master, show us the Father, and it will be enough. He said, have you known me so long? And yet you don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? The book of Hebrews sums it up like this. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so I just want to 
reflect very quickly on this, that that scriptural language in Hebrews 1, it gives us an insight into how Jesus can say that if we see him, we see the Father, and yet at the same time, not conflate the Father and the Son. Right? So I hope you, you know, the play loosened you up to be able to think, because this is, this is deep stuff. But <laughs> Hebrews 1.3, it uses this language of light, the radiance of glory, right? So if you think about the sun, the, the big ball of gas in the sky, right? As Pumbo puts it, right? Um, the sun radiates its glory to us. We look up in the sky and we see it. But how do we see it? We see the sun through its glory radiating sun rays, light waves that travel 300 million miles before they hit our retinas. And so when you see the sun's glory, you see the sun, right? And so what Hebrews 1.3 is saying is that Christ is to the Father what the sun's rays are to the sun. They make the sun visible. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God, the eternal Son, when you see him, you see the Father. And so it brings us to our second point, which is the revelation of eternal fatherhood. So what you see here is that even though Christ is not the Father, he is the Father's action. He is the Father's radiating of himself outwards. And so this is how we can hold together the, the not that we can fully conceive of this and wrap our heads around the mystery of the Trinity, but we, we have a window into, uh, into this through the scriptural language that this is how the oneness and the distinctiveness within the Godhead holds together. They're always eternally coexistent. There was never a moment when one did not exist without the other. It would be absurd. Right? There's never a moment where the sun existed where it wasn't exuding the brilliance of its, of its glory. Now, there was a time that the sun didn't exist, so the, you know, all the analogies eventually break down, but, but uh, there was never a time when the Father existed without the Son and the Holy Spirit at the same time. It's this eternal community of the Godhead. And so, bear all that in mind as we, as we get into this next part, because I want you to follow a scriptural thread with me here, okay? Jesus reveals the Father. That's what we've already seen. But the only place I know of where Jesus refers to himself in terms of a father is in Luke 15. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the only place I know of. Luke 15, Jesus is being criticized by the Pharisees for eating with sinners, and Luke says he responds by telling them a parable. And then Jesus goes on to tell three parables. So either Luke can't count, or, or what he's trying to say is that these three parables are just different aspects of the same one parable. They're all communicating the same thing. All right? And so you know them. It's the parable of a good shepherd, the parable of a good woman, the parable of a good father, or the parable of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Okay? So in the first of those, Jesus paints himself as a good shepherd. 
And remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would instantly, just like you probably, whenever you think of a good shepherd, you think instantly of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He provides for me. He guides me. He protects me. He, you know, he, he throws banquets for me. And so <clears throat> in Psalm 23, there's this kind of implicit incarnational language. God is a shepherd walking and leading his sheep. So God is physically present, and it's also messianic because, of course, David was a shepherd. And so Jesus, when he tells the story, he's tying, he's tying both of those images to himself. Now, when you, when you follow through uh, the thread of Scripture, you see that those same images were picked up uh, by the prophets. Jeremiah 23. And, and we begin to see what's called uh, progressive revelation here. And what that means is God, through the course of salvation history, gradually revealing more and more of who he is until the picture becomes in focus with, with Jesus. So Psalm 23, we find out a little bit more. Um, uh, sorry, Jeremiah 23, we also find a shepherd. And here we find, I'm not going to read it because we're, uh, they're, they're long passages, but I encourage you to go read these. Um, so, uh, Jeremiah 23, Yahweh pronounces woe on the bad shepherds of Israel who have scattered the flock. And because of this, this is what God says in response to the failure of Israel's shepherds. He says, I will gather the remnant of my flock. And later on he says, I will raise up a king who will be known as Yahweh Tzidkenu. Yahweh, our righteousness. It's reminiscent of what we've been reading in Isaiah. All right? Interesting. Now, you fast forward a little bit more. Ezekiel 34, you, you get a, 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 a clearer picture coming into focus of who this is going to be. And it's an extended passage. There's 24 verses. So here, the Lord, in the same way, he rebukes the bad shepherds of Israel. He says that they failed in their duty to feed and protect the sheep. But now we get an extra thing, that the Lord also rebukes the sheep. The sheep are wayward. And by the way, if the Lord is my shepherd, what does that make me? And so the Lord is rebuking the shepherds. He's also rebuking the sheep. So what is his solution? Well, here's what he says. Verse 11, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. Then I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Reminiscent of Psalm 23. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the, the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Uh, the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock. And, Psalm, uh, uh, verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, I don't know if you caught that. But in the very same breath, God says that he himself will be the shepherd. I myself. I myself. I myself. He repeats. 
But in the same breath, he says, and I will set up the messianic king to be the shepherd. So which is it? Will God himself be the shepherd, or will the messianic king be the shepherd? And so you go back to Luke 15, and Jesus answers the question. He identifies himself as the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one lost. He identifies, this is very interesting, he identifies himself as the good woman who goes and sweeps the house to search for one lost coin. And he identifies himself as the good father who freely forgives and restores a rebellious son. And so remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. These are the rulers. These are the teachers of Israel. And so the comparison is obvious. When Jesus is talking about, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, you're the bad shepherds. (laughs) But the sheep don't get off easy either. The sheep, like the lost son, are also wayward. And so this is the point of this thread of Scripture that we're seeing here. It's finally fulfilled in Jesus, and this is the point. When human fathers failed, the eternal father intervened. You know, you read the story of Israel, the history of salvation. Israel had been chosen, had been covenanted with God for a purpose, to redeem the world, right? To bring the seed of Abraham to all nations, to bring all nations into covenant with God. And so this is why Israel was chosen. And so the shepherds that were, Israel failed. And the shepherds that were placed in charge had led the sheep astray. And not only that, but the sheep themselves were were rebellious and didn't even want to submit to the shepherds. So you end up in this dilemma. God's made this promise, this covenant to Abraham that he must fulfill. And yet he's also a just God who is righteous. And so how can he fulfill his promise of faithfulness to Abraham and his promise of justice for evil? And the answer is, he himself steps into the picture. And so this brings us to the last point here, the invitation of eternal fatherhood. So as we we read that thread through Psalm 23 and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, um, it leads to the conclusion that the Messiah that Isaiah is talking about is not only going to be Uh, human, but will in fact be God in the flesh. And somehow will also be this Davidic Messiah King. And so in Luke 15, you have Jesus painting himself as the true and good shepherd, the true and good woman, the true and good father. When we see him, we see the father. And so what do we see when we look at Jesus in the story of the good father, which is, I think it's a better name than the story of the prodigal son, because it's not really ultimately about the son. It's about the father. And so what you see in that is that Jesus is subverting the expectations of what a father should be like, especially in that culture. Isaiah prophesies this this coming eternal father, a father who is, uh, he holds time in his hands, and there's an expectation, and it's even in the prophecy, um, there's there's an expectation of judgment, right? Defeating Israel's enemies. Jeremiah and Ezekiel also talked about God's judgment, and rightfully so. There's much to judge in the world. And so when Jesus tells the story of this rebellious son, 
who disrespects the father. He, he, he wishes him dead. He takes an early inheritance, and then he goes off. He wastes it, um, and you see the parallel between this wayward son and, and God's beloved son, Israel. Israel, who was, had everything um, it could have wanted in the father's house, uh, and yet uh, wanted nothing to do with God. They chose their own kings received everything from God, and went off and wasted it. Now, in Jesus' time, they find themselves oppressed under Gentile rule. And so the wayward son is Israel. And the question is, how will he return? And this is a question the Pharisees were deeply concerned about. If you want to know why the Pharisees took everything so seriously— it's because they really cared about Israel coming back to God. And they thought the way to do this was righteousness, the keeping of the law. And we can, you know, we can sometimes take an unfavorable view towards them, but I think at the heart that was, that was um, a noble thing that they did desire. But the question is, how will he return? How will Israel come back to the Father? And the answer is, he must repent or face judgment, Right? And so we know the story. It says the son comes to himself. And he makes up this speech that he's going to go back to the father and he's going to beg to become the father's servant. And, uh, and so we think, you know, he repents and then the father forgives him and he throws the party and everything's great. Now, I think that's how most people think they've got to come to God. There's a sense that he's a father. He's angry. He's demanding, and we can't hold that against him because we know that we haven't done what we should have done. And so we feel that to get back to God, we have to really be sorry. We have to uh, make up for it. We've got to clean up our act, and once we've cleaned up our act, then maybe the, maybe the Father will accept us back. Otherwise, if we don't, obviously he'd want nothing to do with us. And so... Many, many people think that the Father's invitation, the invitation of the Father is, fix yourself and then come back to me and we'll see. If you repent enough, if you make a good enough show of it, if you feel enough, if you cry enough, if you make amends enough, then I will forgive you. But remember, that story of the lost son, it's one of three in one parable. And they all tell the same story. You've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And Jesus says, this parable is all about repentance. All right? Number one, a shepherd finds a lost sheep and carries it home. How does Jesus, what's the application that Jesus draws out of that? He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So let me ask you, what did the sheep do to repent? He drives the point home even more. A woman loses a coin, sweeps the house, finds the coin, throws a party. Application. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. What did the coin do to repent? It's an inanimate object right? Jesus says this is a picture of repentance. Now, 
Same thing with the story of the lost son. Somehow we, we think the application is different to the third one, and it's not. The story of the lost son, if you pay attention closely to what it says, it says, while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the son said, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. The son had this whole speech. He didn't even even get a chance to say it. The father ran to him. So what is Jesus showing us about the heart of the father? And this is it. A father's invitation is to relationship. It's not an invitation to sackcloth and ashes to earn his relationship. He's an eternal father, not only by virtue of his eternal rule, but by virtue of his eternal, loving, compassionate relationship to his kids. And so God's invitation is not to be his servants, it's to be his sons. The son made that whole speech. He said, Father, you know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to make this speech, and maybe he'll make me like one of his servants because his servants have everything they need. The father wasn't interested in that. The father runs out to him and initiates relationship before the son even can get the words out. And so this is, this is good news for us. It's good news for our family and friends who maybe know that they need to be coming back to God. Maybe they need to be in church and they might feel guilty about it, but they feel like, I can't go there because I don't have my life sorted out, right? I've got family members like that. And I think of them with this, that no, God wants you. He's, he's eager to invite you back. You don't need to fix up your life. Come as you are. He's already forgiven you and accepted you. He's not looking for some great show of repentance to pay, to pay for your sins. God the Father has already taken the shame and the judgment on himself. He took the shame, he took the judgment, and he's already forgiven you. And just like that lost sheep, just like that lost coin, just like that lost son, what repentance means is allowing yourself to get picked up like a sheep allowing yourself to be found, if you can say that, of a coin. The son, allowing yourself to be hugged and welcomed back. It's accepting the forgiveness that he's already offered. That is the eternal father's heart of God. That is the eternal heart of God revealed in the Messiah before he was even conceived because in that coming Messiah, it was the good father himself running out to meet us. The good shepherd, the good father, stepping into the story of Israel in the flesh while we were yet a long way off. So, as the musicians come back up and we close with a, um, with a hymn, a carol, I want to pray for us. And especially anyone here or anyone in your life that 
needs to hear that good news of a father's love, a father's invitation. Um, if, if there's anyone here like that, I want to pray for you. And um, if, if um, you have someone in, in your mind, in your heart, that the Lord's pointing out, um, you, we can pray for them together right now as well. Let's pray. Musicians, you can come up. Lord Jesus, I thank you that when we look at you, we see the Father. We see the Father's heart. And Jesus, as we celebrate you and your life this Christmas, and we reflect on this prophecy from Isaiah, Lord, thank you for showing us the eternal Father. And Jesus, that your heart exudes that compassionate, loving Father's heart. Thank you, Jesus, that you ran out to meet us, to rescue us before we could get our act together. Lord, left to our own devices, we would never get our act together. So I thank you, Jesus, that you took that shame, you took that judgment on yourself. You've already offered forgiveness to us, Lord. And so if there's anyone here that has never entered into that relationship and forgiveness, you can do that right now. You can say, Jesus, I'm sorry for how I've wandered off, done my own thing. Thank you that you came to rescue me. You lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. Please accept me now. Make me a son. I believe that you rose again so that that could be possible. Give me your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I want to follow you um, from this day forward. And Lord, we pray also for our friends, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues, um, those that you're putting on our hearts right now, that this Christmas, you would equip us as a body. Even as, Lord, I thank you for how this happened yesterday, that we were able to represent something of your heart to this local community yesterday. Lord, we pray that over this Christmas, um, you would make your Father's heart just exude out of this community, that people would see your love, your compassion, your forgiveness, that all we must do is receive it. And as we receive that gift, we are transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.